Well, it's good to be here. Good to see all of y'all. And uh, I want to thank all of y'all for your prayers. And for the past uh, year, I'm sure a lot of y'all know, I went through quite an uh, event last year. But the Lord was faithful through it all, and I'm thankful for that. And so it's, uh, it's good to be back here and to be able to share with you. Well, let's turn to Psalms 27. I want to read the last two verses, verse 13 and verse 14. And this is uh, David here speaking. I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thy heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. So the title of my message is uh, Waiting in Warfare. Waiting in Warfare. How many of y'all are familiar with warfare? Uh, the Bible speaks a lot about the enemy, the devil, who's our adversary. First Peter 5, 7 says, Your adversary, the devil, is going about like, like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But be sober and be vigilant. And so he's your adversary. He's my adversary. What is he trying to do? He's trying to stop and prevent us from coming to the fulfillment of God's purposes in our life. He wants to stop it as, as quickly and fast as he can. He wants to destroy our lives. John 10.10 10 says he came to kill, steal, and to destroy. We know that Jesus said he came to give us a, a, an abundant life. And that's what the Lord is, is doing for us, is giving us an abundant life. We, we also have Ephesians chapter 6. I, I'm sure we're all familiar with that in verse 10 where it says, to us to put on the whole armor of God that we might be able to do what? To stand against the wiles, the methods or schemes of the devil because he's a plotter and a planner. He doesn't ever give up. He's looking for uh, ways to get in to your building like they just got into your building here. He wants to find a way to sneak into your life, into your household, and he wants to do all he can to destroy it. And uh, the Lord, we all know about faith, at least I assume you do. And we all know that the beginning of the Christian life, it starts with the subject of believing. But a lot of people do faint. As it says in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 9, I believe it is, be you weary in, or don't be weary in well-doing unless you faint. So don't be weary, or in other words, be exhausted. You ever gotten exhausted? Unless you faint, which means just really worn out, and you just lost all your strength. That happens to some people sometimes, and what do they do when that happens? They begin to quit or to walk away. The last thing that people want to really do is wait. My wife and I were talking which inspired this message uh, a week or so ago. And she said, I think the hardest thing to do is to wait for the fulfillment of something that God has promised. Amen. And that really, uh, it, uh, it, it sunk into my heart. I thought, that's true. I've been through that. Because we've all waited for things. I mean, if you're, if you've, if you're married and you've uh, 
been pregnant, you've had to wait nine months for the child to be born. And I'm sure that the first part of it's excited, but near the end it gets a little, uh, probably a little more difficult because you're getting near the, the birth. And a lot of us have, have to wait for other things. Maybe you've been waiting for a job or maybe you've been like Adam waiting for the picker back here. We call him the picker in Virginia. Maybe you're waiting for a mate. Well, y'all finally got one from us. <laughs> Lord have mercy. That's okay. We're going to come back, strike back again. <laughs> but waiting is, is, is a difficult thing because a lot of things can happen while you're waiting, can't they? I mean, things can go wrong. I mean, the adversary comes. I mean, confusion can come into your life. Uh, certain adversities, I mean, that can happen. Attacks from the devil, whether they be mental, financial, or physical. Many people have been waiting for prosperity all these years or been believing for something. I mean, just simply believing for God to fulfill what he said he would do. Now, we all know that everything starts with faith, and we know who the author and the finisher of, of faith is, don't we? Amen. And we're on this long journey. And in between, we're supposed to do what? We're supposed to wait. And what are we waiting for? To finish. I didn't spell that right, I don't think, but that's what it's all about. But in here, all this time we're in here, we, we find there's a lot of things that are going on trying to stop us to wait. How many of you ever given up for something you've been waiting for? Huh? And he's the author and the finisher of our faith. And we gave up. Maybe it was just around the corner and we gave up. Maybe that financial prosperity. Maybe that new job that you've been waiting for. I don't know. But there's so many things like that that can be in our lives. And so I, I believe that there is really a twofold warfare here. I believe there's a warfare against God as well as against all of his people. You know, the devil tried to, in Isaiah 14, we know that the devil tried to exalt himself above the throne of God. He's the five-eye wills of Satan. And we have come to the New Testament and we see that in the last days, he's going to try to do the same thing. He's going to find, you're going to find him in the temple declaring himself to be as God. But he can't defeat God, so what does he try to do? He tries to get the image of God, which is us. Because in the very beginning, God created man in his very image. And the one word is used about that, he breathed. He took a handful of clay and he breathed into it and it became a living soul. And he created Adam and he uh, created Eve. And ever since, we've been in a warfare. That the devil's tried to come into the garden, tried to come into our lives, into our families, into our churches, in so many different various ways, all for one purpose, to kill, steal, and to destroy. Because that's what he wants to do. I think he wants to stop God from fulfilling the purposes that he has already decreed to be fulfilled. Because the ultimate goal that God has in our lives is to have us to conform to the image of Christ, Romans 8.29. That's, a, that's, that's the greatest of all, the ultimate of our destination we have is to come to the fullness of Christ. 
And so the Bible says a lot of things about waiting. Let me quote some of them to you. Psalms 25 and verse 5 says, Lead me in thy truth and teach me, for thou art the God of my salvation. On thee I wait all the day. Now, Hebrew for wait is a word that's interesting because it has to do with to look for or hope for or to have expectancy. And so it also can mean to, to be a, a, twi a twisting of a rope, binding together, like a threefold cord is not easily broken. And so I think that God is trying to get us closer to Him and get us in a relationship with Him and intertwined us in His will and His purposes so that we are united to Him. The Bible speaks a lot about being in Christ, and that's one of the most important subjects of the Bible that very few Christians really hold on to. Because if you're in Christ, the devil can't take you away. You have to make a decision to walk away. Because God is for you. He's not against you. Amen. And a lot of people don't want to wait for what God has done. They want to just, they want to short circuit everything. They want it on their terms. They want it quickly. They want it fast. And when we want something real bad and we get out of, in the flesh, we end up doing what Abraham did. And you know what happened there. And you know what that got, brought us into this world. What brought the Arab nation into this world and all the chaos and confusion and the warfare, barbarianism. That's what came out of that because a man got out in the flesh. And so we see this picture all through the Bible. So the hopes of someone can remain unfilled, especially when a nation or person or individual is not living right or sinning. So you can say that you're believing God for something and you're waiting for it, but it's not going to be fulfilled as long as you're not right with God. Because just because you are in Christ, but if you're not living like you are in Christ, then you can't expect God to do what he said he would do. Because God is not going to fulfill his promise to a rebel. If I got my scriptures correct, and I believe I do. I mean, the Lord will give, uh, he's not going to disappoint you because he's going to fulfill everything finally. Ultimately, God will have his way with all of us and sometimes he has to do a quick work and cut it short in righteousness. And I believe we're probably getting into that mood because we don't have much longer upon this earth, I don't think, with everything you see going on. I mean, you know the devil hates God. There's no argument about that. I mean, if you want to see a picture of that, just look how much the Democrats hate Christianity. Now, I'm not trying to bring politics in. I'm just saying you look at human beings and I mean, these people who call themselves politicians, they hate, they hate God so much that they're willing to bring this uh, thing about family planning in, abortion, homosexuality. They're all for that kind of stuff. And that's really a smear against God. I don't know how people can be Christians and, and proclaim those kind of things and have a clear conscience. But yet they do that. So there, there is a, a really a war against God. It's not just a war against women or a war between races. 
It's actually the devil behind the scenes working to try to get into people's lives to create all kinds of chaos and confusion and destroy lives. That's what he does. But the Lord will give strength to his people and he'll give hope to them if we wait on him. That's why it says, wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thy heart. But wait, I say, on the Lord. Now he emphasizes that in verse 14. Psalms 37 verse 7 says, rest in the Lord and wait patiently. So he adds to that patiently. Wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. So sometimes, like in, uh, was it Psalms, uh, I think 73, where Asap was all upset over the prosperity of the wicked, and his feet almost slipped. He backslid, almost backslid, until he went into the house of the Lord, into the sanctuary, and he saw therein. He got close to God, and he saw what was happening. And it, his attitude began to change as you read through that psalm. So God wants us to wait. Psalms 37 verse 9 says also, For evildoers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon the Lord shall inherit the earth. So ultimately, what are we going to inherit? The earth. The earth. That's going to be real interesting. Then we'll see who will be in charge. So he's telling us here, again, that evildoers shall be cut off. I mean, evil will be around as long as God's purposes aren't fulfilled. Then verse Psalms uh, 62, verse 5, My soul, wait thou upon God for my expectations from him. Now, who is your expectation from? Who are you expecting to prosper you? Who are you expecting to fulfill that promise to you? That's what's important because he is our expectation. And then in Psalms in 30, 30 and verse 18, I mean Isaiah verse 30 and verse 18. 30, 18. Isaiah. And this is an interesting account here because Israel had rebelled against God and God was sending judgment against them because of that. And why was he sending judgment? Response? I just said it. Israel was sinning against God and he sent judgment. So why did God send judgment? Because of sin. That's why he sends things like that. And so here he says, and therefore, verse 18, will the Lord wait? Now who's waiting? The Lord is, right. That he may be what? So God is waiting to be gracious. Can you imagine that, that God is just waiting to be gracious to his, to his people who are rebelling, who are sinning? So it's not like, I mean, God is a God of wrath, and God, but God's not up there, you know, snorting with anger all the time. He's looking to be gracious unto you. And therefore will he be exalted, that he may have mercy upon you, for the Lord is a God of judgment. Blessed are they that wait for Him. So here's God waiting, and here is He's saying, Blessed are they that wait for Him. Waiting for Him to do what? Well, if you read through the whole context, down to verse 26, you're saying to be gracious, to fulfill His promise to them, because that's what it's all about. So Isaiah is seeking to get them to turn to the Lord. Isaiah is a prophet, and he was sent to them by God, 
to warn them of judgment to come. In verse uh, 26, Moreover, the light of the moon shall be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun shall be sevenfold as the light of seven days, and the day that the Lord bindeth up the breach of his people and healeth the stroke of their wound. So ultimately, God's going to come through with them, to them. But it's based on a certain condition, and that is that God that they would repent. So waiting here is just God's longing. It's a picture of God longing to do something good to his people, to fulfill his word, to bestow his grace, his mercy, his love upon his people. I don't think we often see it that way. I think people always kind of thinking, well, you know, they're scared of God. They don't see that God is a God of grace and mercy and love. I'm not saying that he can't be wrathful. That's nothing to take lightly. And so God is long-suffering, according to the New Testament, willing that none would perish, which brings up a question. Why is God long-suffering, willing that none would perish? Because he wants to be gracious to people. He wants to gather in the people whom he's chosen and elected before the foundations of the world. And I don't think that God's purposes are going to be fulfilled until... He has got all his people in. That's why evil continues. Because a lot of people ask that question too. You see this, you know, all these things going on that where the devils are, why does it, people ask questions, why does it, uh, God allow the devil to do certain things? Because he's sovereign and he uses the devil for his own bidding. Because he uses him to even chasten us to get our attention. It's interesting about this when you begin to look at it because you see that God is bound by certain laws, spiritual laws. And God is not going to show mercy or grace to anybody who's a rebel. So he's waiting for them to repent, waiting for them to turn around and come back to him. He sends his prophets and his ministers, no doubt, to warn his people. And we see that all through the Scripture. Isaiah 40 and verse 31 says, But they that wait upon the Lord shall, be, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. Now, that's good. Because I'd fainted unless I'd believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of living. So what we have here on this journey of faith is if we start fainting and we don't wait, we're not going to make it. And I'm afraid a lot of people have already dropped out of the race, if you would say it that way. Lamentations 3 and verse 26 says, It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. Waiting for the salvation of the Lord. Quietly waiting for that to take place. Then in the New Testament, Luke 12, 36, speaking about the return of the Lord. This is an important event. Because that is what we're waiting for, isn't it? Hello? We're waiting for the Lord to return to do what? To take His church and to reign and rule. Luke twelve thirty six. And ye yourselves like unto men that wait for their Lord when He shall return from the wedding, that when He cometh and knocketh, they may open unto Him immediately. Then 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 10. 
and to wait or await for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. So he's already did that. He's delivered us from the wrath to come. So God's purpose for us as his people is to see us completely ready and prepared for his coming. So I think the devil is, is, is at war. There's no argument against God and against his people, against the church. You wonder why some of the things that go on, they go on. Because the devil is trying to stir up trouble. Just like this break-in you had. Do you think the devil was behind that? Do you think God allowed that? Well, it wouldn't have happened unless God allowed it. What was the reason for it? Was it to get your attention? Was it to wake you up? I don't have the answer to that, but I believe I would look down that road. Because there has to be something there that you can put your finger on that there's an open door. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 2. Now, it had been a time somebody said this to me, 1 Thessalonians, if they'd have said this to me, I'd have probably rebuked them. How many of you believe that you're appointed unto afflictions? Now, I could call every name in here and say, you're appointed to afflictions. You say, I rebuke you. Well, I understand where you're coming from, but you're wrong because that's what the Bible says. If the Bible says it, it's true. First Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 2. And he sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you, to make you stable, and to comfort you concerning your faith that no man should be moved by these afflictions, for yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. And maybe you ought to underline that, because he's saying there to them, at Thessalonica, the church, he says, yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. So we have an appointment with afflictions. There'd been a time I wouldn't have liked that. I like it better what it says, and I think in Psalms 34, many are the affliction of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth them out of all of them, because that's a promise. But God also says here that He allows them to come. Now, it's interesting, He says that you should not be what? Moved by these afflictions. Which could, you know, I guess be, you know, describing certain physical or financial or uh, other things that you might be going through, domestic situations, hardships, appointed to afflictions. Don't be moved. The Greek word for that is the wagging of a dog's tail. That's the picture. I thought that to be very strange. Don't be moved. So that means to stir, to shake, and to disturb. So what the devil does, he wants to try to stir up, shake up, and disturb as much as he can in our lives, in our families, in our church. He doesn't want you to have peace. He doesn't want you to have joy. He doesn't want you to have victory. He doesn't want you to see God's fulfillment in your life. He wants to stop it. 
He wants to prevent it from happening. He wants to prevent your marriage from being successful. He wants to prevent you from being a good witness and a good testimony. He wants to do everything he can. He wants to keep on wagging and barking, using his tail, as it says here, to shake and to disturb and to move things. Agitate is another word that's used. Ever been agitated? Sure. So God sends his word by his prophets and by his ministers, and he does it. He brings his word to call them to return, and he sends chastisement to call his people to return. And like I said, and like my wife said to me about this whole thing, the most difficult, difficult thing to do is to wait. Because when you're waiting for something, there's a lot of things that are going on, a lot of distractions, as we were talking about earlier. At least time when I were. You ever been distracted about something? Why does the devil do that? To keep you from focusing. To rob your attention to what God is doing or saying to you personally. He's trying his best to try to agitate things and to disturb the situation. And I'm going to tell you something. Warfare is not something that is passive where you just sit back and fold your arms. That's not what you do. If you're engaged in warfare, you're, you're paying attention to what's going on all around you. I mean, there's guns going off and bullets flying by all over the place and there's an enemy creeping up on you. You're going to think and focus a whole lot more seriously than you would if you didn't know that was going on. I think it's going to come a time in, in this country where we're going to find ourselves paying a lot more attention to what's going on and focusing in order to keep ourselves out of harm's way because the devil is going to try to draw us out. You know, in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus was basically uh, speaking to the religious leaders of the day and he was rebuking them. He was, he was coming down on them pretty hard. You get to the end of that, though, and it's something very interesting in verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets of all people. Almost like you want to say, O America, America, that killeth the Christians. And stonest them which are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thee Thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings. And listen to the last phrase. And you would not. Now, have you ever seen little chickens and a mother hen trying to gather them together? You ever seen the chickens just pecking and trying to push her mother away? Well, that's the picture you're getting here. They're against what God is doing. Now, who stirred that up? The devil's behind that. Amen. He's trying to frustrate the purposes of God. So they can't partake of his mercy and his grace and his goodness. James chapter 4 and verse 7. God has a special, I think, longing for his people. I think it's something that is recognized throughout the Bible if you pay attention. James 4 and verse 5. Now, it hits us in a context where he's telling them about they're, they're warring in their own members. You lust and you have not. You kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight in war and you have not because you ask not. Then in verse 4, he, he says to this, you adulterers and adulteresses. Now, he's speaking about spiritual 
adultery and the spiritual adulteries. Know you not that the friendship of the world is to be in opposition, that's what enmity means, with God. So who's in opposition or at war with God? He's speaking to Christians here. And they're at war with God. Because the devil has stirred it up, no doubt. Because, you know, he's worked in them, the, you know, the friendship of the world. People get so close to the world, they get attached to it that they can't even come to church. They can't spend time with their family. They can't, can't spend time in the Word. They can't do what God requires of them because they're, they're just too attached to this world. All the TV and the Internet and the cell phones and everything else is part of the world system, and that's all good and fine if used correctly. But often we get off distracted again, and the devil pulls us away. He uses those things to fight against us. I wonder how many times you probably had to tell your children no TV tonight. When we were young Christians and our kids were just little bitty things, and we had a little, a little parakeet in the house. And my wife kept telling, you know, she got the parakeet to talk. They do it. But all they do is just repeat what you say. You know what they, that parakeet said? No TV tonight. No TV tonight. Because she kept saying it. They picked it up. I think the kids picked it up too because they realized that you know you're not going to get you're not going to get to watch TV tonight because it was a distraction. We saw it as a, something that was a a hindrance in the life of the, of of their relationship with their mother and father and with the Lord. So we go to Second Corinthians chapter four. Let's, let's finish here, James chapter four. He says. Verse 5, do you think that the Scripture saith in vain the Spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? Now, he's talking about the Holy Spirit because he's the only one I know of that dwells in us. Unless there's an evil spirit in you. So here is something that where the Holy Spirit jealously desires to have you. And he says, he, gives, he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resists the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God and resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So he's talking here about warfare. And he goes on talking, draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourself in the sight of God, and he shall lift you up. I believe God will do that if we do our part. I really do. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, because we see here that in that verse you see God is really longing for his people. The spirit that dwells in us jealously desires us to be in contact with God and to be in union with him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul writing to the Corinthians and warning them. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, he says, in whom the God of this world, now we know who that is. That's the devil. Bl has blinded the minds of them which believe not. So those unbelievers are blinded by the devil. He's got them where he wants them. And he keeps them blind, unless the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. So the devil don't want people to hear the gospel. And the context is talking about if your gospel be hid, it's hid to them that are lost. So if you put a bushel over your light, nobody sees anything. If you're going to be silent about your testimony and you're not going to share it, then nobody's going to ever hear it. 
And the devil's behind that. You might invite somebody over to have dinner and then you watch TV and you don't talk about the Lord. You had an opportunity to. Well, let me tell you what the Lord done for me. Give them a testimony. There's always something in your life, isn't there? Maybe you just got a, some, some money in the mail or something God did, or maybe you just got a healing. You could tell them about it. That draws people. It makes them think. What are you all looking out there like that for? <laughs> you scared to, to give a testimony? That's where the problem is. But the devil has blinded the man's value in this world because when God created man, he created him in whose image? In God's image. We're in the very image of God. And the devils did everything he can to blind even believers to that fact. And that's something that Romans tells us in Romans 8.29 that God wants us to conform to the image of Christ. I mean, I think that's the ultimate goal of God is to bring his church into that place of perfection and maturity in Christ. And then, then the, the end will come, which we'll see in a minute. Because man has failed to view things the right way. He doesn't view things from an eternal standpoint. He views them from a, a temporal standpoint. You know, 2 Corinthians 4 brings that out in verse 17 and 18. For our light affliction, and speaking of affliction again, or, you know, in other words, he's saying you're, you're easy tribulations <laughs> or distresses, which is but for a moment. They're only momentary. You know what a moment is? It just went by. That's how quick it is. It's quick. Worketh for us. So it's working for us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. But how is it working for us? Now, if it's working for us, it has to be a way it's working for us. And the next verse tells us, while we look not at the things which are seen, we're not looking at those things that are seen, but at the things which are not seen or eternal. For the things which are not seen, the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal, everlasting. So we've got to get our eyes off the temporal world onto the eternal world. How do we do that? Well, chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, verse 18 tells us. I think it does. But we with all with open face, beholding as in a glass or mirror, the glory of the Lord. So God's word is like a mirror, and as we look into it, we are changed into the same image. What image? Image of God. From glory to glory. By the Spirit of the Lord. That's the work of God, is to change us. God is in the changing business. And He wants to change every one of our lives. None of us are perfect. Anybody want to raise your hand and say, I'm perfect? I don't see any hands go up. So God didn't create us just to live in a temporal world, looking at time and counting the, the minutes that go by. But we're created to focus on eternal things. That's what God wants us to focus on. But if you'd be honest with yourself, you know that there's a lot of distractions, again, that keep you away from the eternal. And we're constantly pulled to those things. I mean, you, you take just a, a mother with many children. You're busy all day long, and distractions constantly coming. And so God sent Jesus for the purpose of redeeming us, 
and God wants to do a work in our lives. Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation, so that's where salvation comes from, is from the grace of God, has appeared to all men. And it's teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, that we should live soberly righteous and godly in this present world. Present world. So how does God want us to live in this present world? It's an open book quiz. You can look right down there and you can say, how does God want us to live in this world, this present world? Well, he wants us to live soberly, righteously, and godly. Is that what it says? All right. How do you do that? By looking into the Word. And the Word begins to change you. And then he goes on and he tells us here, looking for that blessed hope, which would be Christ, and the glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. So what is he saying? We're looking for him. We are to be longing and expecting this, this to happen, especially in the era in which we live. And he says, who gave himself for us. That's why he came. He gave himself for us. Why? That he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify himself, purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. So what is God doing? What has he done? Well, God has already redeemed us, has he not? From what? All sin. And what is he doing now? Purifying. It's not a word we like. To be pure. Clean. No defilement. But that's what God is doing. That's what he says right here. And that's what God is still doing right now. He's purifying His church. Is He, is he coming back, according to Ephesians chapter 5, for a glorious church Amen. without spot or without blemish? Amen. Now think about that for a while. Because that's a lot to think about. He's coming back for not a, a weak, anemic church or defeated church, but a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle. Yeah. Clean and pure. Now, he's not going to come back until that mission is accomplished. And the devil's trying to prevent it. So if we don't fight against the devil, what he's trying to do to us, then we're preventing the Lord from coming back. Because we quit, we give in. We quit waiting and fighting. That's why I call this waiting and warfare. Because while you're waiting, there's a war going on. And you're not passive, you're active. You're actively involved in what's going on. So, why does God allow or tolerate all the evil? Why does he tolerate the, the atrocious things that we see today? Because God is in charge, is he not? Do we agree with that? But then we also can say, well, if God is in charge and sovereign, why does he allow all this evil to take place? <clears throat> well, God has a reason for it. All the suffering and immorality, he could stop it. All he'd have to do is just blink an eye or swing a hand or something and I mean he could just smite them dead in a moment I've heard people why don't God just strike them dead that would be nice if he would do that but he's not going to do that because he's allowing that to take place and he's doing it to produce a glorious church 
That's part of what's behind all of it. Because that's what verse 12 tells us, teaching us that denying ungodliness. I don't think we have come to that place that we've been taught or learned that. We've been taught that, but we haven't learned it to apply it to our lives, that we can deny that and the worldly lust and live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. And what's the problem is, remember in 2 Timothy 4.10, it speaks about Demas has forsaken me. Why? Loving this present world. Not the eternal world, but loving the present world. So that drew, drew him away or distracted him. And so we haven't learned this lesson, denying ungodliness and worldly lust. There's too much of it, still remnants of it in our lives. And it, it, it distracts us and lures us away. And the devil's good at that. He's good at setting bait. He's good at tempting. That's what he does. That's part of his agenda. And so we have to respond. Because Jesus has accomplished one part. He's already redeemed us from all iniquity. And we are in Christ, and that's most important. But he's not finished with us, because Philippians 2, verse 12 and 13 says, He's working in us to will and do of his good pleasure. And what else does it say? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So whatever God is working in you, you've got to work it out. You've got to act up on it. You've got to be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. Now, God has provided us with righteousness. Man's greatest need is righteousness. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 and following, it tells us very clearly all through Romans, I mean, about sin and the problem upon the human race. I mean, Romans 3.10 says, all have, none, none are righteous, no, not one. That's, a, that's a, a devastating statement. There's none that are none righteous, no, not one. Then Romans 3 and verse 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So where is the redemption at? It's in Christ Jesus. It's not in your good works. It's not in religion. It's in a relationship with Jesus Christ that is personal. Whom God has set forth as a propitiation or a covering through faith in His blood. So it's faith in what He did and shedding of His blood that redeems us or makes us righteous. To declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. I declare, I say, at this time, the righteousness that, might be, uh, that He might be just and the justifier of Him which believeth in Jesus. So here we see this, this subject of righteousness and justification, which are basically the same thing. So God is the one who has justified us, which basically means just as if I never sinned. And that is something that is a very comforting thought to think about because God has acquitted you of all your sins in the past. It's like a man going to court and he's, you know, going, he's being tried for a crime and he's waiting for the verdict to come. I mean, he's a criminal. He did the crime. He knows he's going to be sentenced, maybe to death. And the judge comes out and says, not, not guilty, I, I, I quit you. 
Now, what does that man do if that happens? Well, I think he gets excited. And he starts telling people, I was, I was going to be executed, but I was acquitted. He has a testimony, doesn't he? He has something to say. Because he's been set free from all of the bondage of the past. And there's provision in here for us even now in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we don't have to tolerate the sin or let sin stand there and hold, hold a grip on us because that's what it wants to do. And the devil wants to use it against us. That's what he does best. I deserved hell, but the Lord set me free. So our part is to do what? Well, let's turn to 1 John chapter 3. If He's redeemed us from all iniquity and justified us and made us righteous, First John 3, 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us in that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. Beloved, now we are the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. What are we going to be like? We're going to be like him, conformed to his image. We shall see him as he is. Then verse 3 says, And every man that has this hope in himself purifieth himself even as he is pure. So there's something that's on our part. God has done his part, but there's our part. We have to cleanse ourselves. Now turn to 2 Corinthians with me. Because this is part of the warfare too. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Very familiar with verse 14 and following, aren't we? probably heard it all of our lives. Be, not, be you not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Why? For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? How true is that? Amen. I mean, what, what do you have in common? As we go, and what communion do you have with light with darkness? None. They're diametrically opposed to each other. They don't belong together. And what agreement hath Christ with the devil? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Listen to this. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be you separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. So that's the promise of being his sons and daughters. But it goes on. The chapters aren't in the, in the original. The next chapter 7 and verse 1. Having therefore these promises. What promise? Him being our father, we being his sons and daughters. Dearly beloved, let us do what? Come on, respond, folks. Respond. I want to know if you're paying attention. Let us cleanse what? Our neighbors? Cleanse ourselves from what? All filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now that's part of what we're supposed to do. Because as God's working something in you and reveals something to you that we're supposed to 
respond to it. And so, it's like Titus 2.13 says, we just read just a moment ago, if you remember. Let me go back there and just remind you again of this. Titus chapter 2 and verse 13, when he talked about teaching us the grace has appeared and is teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. Look at verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. So we are continually looking for him to come. I don't know if that's true of the church. I think there's too much distraction going on and too many other things that are going on that are keeping people from the ultimate goal that God has for them in this life. And that is to be holy and without blemish. So there's only one standard. It's Jesus. As he is, so shall we be. That's it. See, we've taken holiness and kind of made it a legalistic kind of doctrine. And certainly holiness is good to teach on. It is a doctrine. It is a teaching. But when we just take it and, and, and put it aside as something that's just, that's le they're real legalistic. You know, they don't do certain things like other people do them. And people start taking that very legalistically. But there's one standard we have, and that is to be like Jesus. That's our goal, to conform to his image. And the only way that's going to happen is by the Spirit of God working in us to will and do of his good pleasure, in us paying attention to what's going on. But you know, you can have the holiness doctrine, but you know what? The evidence is not there. What do I mean by that? The evidence in our lives is not there that we believe in holiness because we're not purifying ourselves. We're allowing things to be in our life. We're not seeking the pure life as it tells us to. I mean, what makes us unclean? According to Mark 7, 21, he says all these things, he mentions a whole list of sins, all these things are, come from out of the heart and they do what? Defile. Make you unclean. So when it starts happening in a person's life, it's because there's something in his heart that has not yet been dealt with. But you know what? You can't hide it from God because God sees everything. Hebrews 4 says, we're naked and open unto him with whom we have to do. And so God sees everything that's in our life. We can use the language and we can attend church and we can raise our hands to God and we can sing the songs and everything else, but that doesn't prove anything. I've seen that too many times. And so have you, I'm sure. Because the problem is that people are very materialistic and covetous and probably idolatry in their life and maybe other things that we don't even know about. We call them, you know, secret sins, as Psalms 19 speaks about, the secret faults. We've lowered the standard and we've permitted ourselves to get involved in things that we shouldn't be, get into. You lower the standard. Just lower it a little bit. Don't make it so hard. Make it easy. And then trouble begins to happen from that. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22. Because this is what God is doing. And the devil is doing everything he can to prevent this from happening. Because we're waiting for the Lord to return. But he's not going to return until he's purified his people. Now, I like what the Bible says. He's going to do a quick work and cut it short in righteousness. I don't know exactly what that means or how that's going to come about, but I know it will. Because he said it, and I believe it. But First Peter 1 and verse 22. Seeing you have purified your souls. 
You purified your souls. How? In obeying the truth. Obedience to the truth. In other words, you're persuaded to what God says about certain things. You'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. So if you hear a word about a certain thing, say covetousness, and you have a problem with money, helping the poor, giving to the widows, or even giving to the church or the building fund, you know, you have a problem with that, and so you don't want to give, then maybe you've got a covetous problem. Maybe you're greedy. That makes you impure. Only you knows that, can know that. Only God can speak to your heart about that and set you free from it. But the only time that will happen is when you begin to obey the truth and you begin to act upon what you know, and that is give. When you do that, then you'll be set free. But as long as you don't obey it, there's no purification that takes place, none whatsoever. And so John 8, 31 says to them that, those that followed him, he said to them, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, and the truth shall set you free. So we don't take it out of context. We like John 8, 32, the truth, you'll know the truth, and it'll set you free. Uh-uh. If you continue in the word, then you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Amen. So it's when you keep coming, you keep listening, and you continue obeying, you keep applying it, you keep working it out in your life. You begin to see little areas here, little areas there, and you begin to work on it, and you change from glory to glory to glory. That means you are purifying yourself, and you're serious about what God is saying. But God requires us to, to make Jesus totally, absolutely Lord of our lives. And I always like to say it this way. He wants you to make him Lord of your life, without any reservations. So hold back no reservations because when you do that, he's not Lord. You got a picture in Daniel chapter 3 of the three Hebrew children when Nebuchadnezzar wanted to, you know, bow down to this golden image or you're going into the furnace. He said, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do it at all. And even if our Lord does not, he said, we're not very careful in this matter because even if the Lord does not, we still are not going to bow down. Now, those people were committed without any reservations. In other words, they're saying, they didn't say we'll follow you as long as we don't get thrown in the fiery furnace. But if we get threatened with the fiery furnace, or in the last days like we're in, our head threatened to be chopped off, then it's no deal. That's a reservation, isn't it? I'm not talking about a reservation for a hotel room. I'm talking about you holding a reservation in your mind about what God requires of you. When you do that, you're lying to yourself and being deceptive. You're not really dealing with the problem that's there. And so God wants us to totally surrender our life to His will to do it. See, our life revolves around God. God's life doesn't revolve around us. Our life revolves around Him, like the sun around the earth. I mean, it's not the opposite. Yet a lot of people like it the other way where, you know, well, I just, you know, I'll do it my way and let God just figure it all out. And they're not willing to really let God have, the, have hold of their mind and their heart and deal with them about specific things and little things. 
You know, people talk about you getting nitpicky sometimes. Well, I believe God can be nitpicky about sin, about things that defile you. You know, you look over in Revelation chapter 1. In verse 12 and verse 13, and I I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. This is John on the Isle of Patmos. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to to the foot, and girt about with the paps with a golden girl. And he goes on talking about the Lord there. The lampstands are the churches. And there is God right in, I mean, right in the midst of them. God's the one who's involved. They, they are revolving around God. God is right in the midst of them. And that's the way it should be for us, not the opposite. So God was the center and the focal point of everything. But what happened? Well, you go over in Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, you see something happened to the church at Ephesus, the first church he speaks of. He says he, he born with them in verse 3. He, uh, they had patience for his namesake, has labored, and has not fainted. Those were good things. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. So they had been distracted. They had been pulled away. And so here they were. They were not waiting for the Lord no more. They're not, not ready. They're not prepared. So what is God really waiting for? I think he's waiting for these people to be ready. Like Revelation says, they don't want to be one who comes out of every tribe, every tongue, every kindred. Do you believe some Arabs will be saved? See, we can find out what we really believe. Because he's going to bring one out of every tongue and every tribe and every race. We believe that. And he'll, but he'll continue to allow evil to take place because until that admission is complete, evil will, will stick around because God's going to use it for his purpose. He's long-suffering, Second Peter 3, 9, willing that none should perish. And I thank God for that because if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't be here or you wouldn't be here. I know I wouldn't be. I know my past better than you do, and I don't want to talk about it or glorify it. But the devil works continually to prevent this purpose. He doesn't want it to be fulfilled. And so our side of waiting becomes very important. And I want to give you principles and conclusion to arrive at this whole thing. I don't know if I have room up here or not, but I'll try. I have to get into Starless place here. The first thing is commitment. How committed are you? How committed do you think God wants you to be? Does God want you to be as committed as Daniel was when he was thrown to the lion's den, as his three Hebrew children when he was threatened with the fiery furnace? Does he want you to be that committed? You remember in Luke 6, 46, he said, Why do you call me Lord and you don't do the things which I say? That passage ought to bother us. Because I think he was really confronting the mediocrity of their commitment. You know, we kind of mediocre. We're not 
hot and on fire for God. We're not full of zeal. We've lost our first love. Maybe we, we cooled off. Well, he says in Revelation to that church of Laodicea, I'll speak you out of my mouth because they weren't committed either. That's what he says in Revelation chapter 3. I mean, he implies that. Because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will speak thee out of my mouth because thou sayest. Now, here's what they're saying. I am rich, increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, miserable, and poor, blind, and naked. And miserable is used also in 1 Corinthians 15 about people who, you know, eat, drink, and be merry. And he says, you're, you're, you're miserable, which means to be pitied. What a pitiful thing. But he gave him good counsel there, didn't he? Amen. Maybe we ought to take it and apply it to our lives. But how committed are we? I mean, how committed are we to spreading God's word? Because isn't, isn't that part of what has to be done before the end comes? Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached unto all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then what does it say? And then shall the end come. And are we looking for the end to come? Are we really? We'll find out because if you're not preaching the gospel, maybe you're not. And maybe also if you're not doing some of the other things we talked about, purifying yourself and being ready, but then waiting for it to be over with. I don't know how many times, I mean, you know, even John in the book of Revelation said, Lord, come quickly. I get a little more understanding of that the older I get. Lord, come quickly. Every time you hear about some of these crazy things going on in this world, you say, Lord, come quickly. But you know what? He's long-suffering. And one day we'll appreciate that more. Which brings me to uh, the next thing is preparing. How many of you are, you are you preparing for the Lord to come? You know what it is to prepare a meal. You know what it is to prepare to go on a trip. But do you know what it is to prepare for the coming of the Lord? Matthew 25 tells us about the five foolish and five wise virgins. But he came back and he caught them unawares. He wouldn't let them in. They would knock and let, me, let us in. It was kind of like the day of Noah when you know, the flood came. Some wanted to get in the ark all of a sudden, but it was too late. It's almost a similar picture there in Matthew chapter 25 about the foolish virgins. All of a sudden, I mean, they see the seriousness of the hour, and all of a sudden, let us in, let us in. No, no, I know you not. That's devastating. And the reason it is is because they weren't prepared. And then Revelation chapter 19 Revelation chapter 19 and verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And so we just simply, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, we're just espoused to the Lord. The marriage supper hasn't taken place yet, but it's going to. When? When the wife has made herself ready. 
That's when. And she, and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Now, this is not the imputed righteousness, which is by faith, but this is what we call the outworked righteousness. This is our side of purifying ourselves. It's proof and evidence that we are righteous even as he is righteous. Everyone that has this hope within himself, let him purify himself even as he is pure. Are we doing that? I don't know that that's taking place. I believe that we're just a little too attached to this world. And we're letting things uh, get in our way. And bride's not making herself ready because that's... I've watched these women get ready for weddings before, and I'm going to tell you what, buddy, they spend a lot of time and a lot of money all for one thing, for the marriage. Their whole focus and concentration is upon that wedding. Is it not? Well, shouldn't ours be the same way? Shouldn't, and isn't that a picture? I believe it is. We're running out of room, Staller. Long-suffering. That's something we all need. Second Timothy 4, 2. I've been told this before. I've been taught it. I think I've learned it. Notice I said I think. I would be willing to bet if any of you had to put up with preachers had to put up with, you wouldn't be nowhere near long-suffering as we've, things we've been through. But Second Timothy chapter 4. In verse 2, preach the word and be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Now, th those are strong words. Reprove, it's not a suggestion. This is a command. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. But notice how he says, with all long-suffering and doctrine or teaching. So that's what you have to do. So you might have to come down hard on somebody, but you can also do it with long-suffering. And all long-suffering means is slow to wrath. So there's nothing wrong with being firm or warning people. You're going to go to hell if you don't get your life right. Now, people call that harsh. I call it long-suffering. See, it's just a perspective of how you look at it. I look back at the times that when I was a young kid and I, I went to church. I mean, I went in one door and out the other door. Mocked the preachers and laughed and joked and fooled around. I look back at those things and thinking sometimes... The people that put up with me, how did they do it? That's what he commands of us. And then Second Peter chapter 3. You know, if you're witnessing to somebody, and you're not, uh, you ever feel like you want to give up on somebody? They're not worth the trouble? Well, next time you think that, think, I'm glad God didn't give up on me. So verse, let's see, 2 Peter 3, verse 19, 9, I mean, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. God's not a slacker, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So that's what God is waiting for. He's waiting for that repentance to come. And then in verse 15, an account that the long-suffering of the Lord is salvation. Now, he equates long-suffering with salvation. I think that is... Amazing. 
And that's what God requires of us, to be long-suffering. Because you know what? You're going to have to be long-suffering with one another as well as to people in this world that you may be witnessing to or trying to win to the Lord. And so let me uh, conclude with a couple more things. One more thing here. Let's see. I have to go over here. Love. You know, it says in the Bible, Matthew chapter 24, I think it's verse 12, because iniquity abounds, the love of many will wax cold. That's what it tells us. The love of many will wax cold. But Jude 21 tells us this. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. So keep yourself in it. Don't walk out of it. Stay in it because you're looking for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And some have compassion making a difference. So that makes a difference in people's lives because people have compassion and love on the people who are in need and need help, like the Good Samaritan. So keep yourself in the love of God, especially in these last days, because it's going to be some terrible times and terrible persecution. And then let me give you one more thing in Matthew 24, verse 13. And that's the word endurance. But he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. Now, folks, that's where it is for us, to endure. You know what 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7 says? It says that love will endure all things. I don't know how much you're willing to endure, and maybe we need to get the love of God deeper in our hearts and keep ourselves in the love of God so that we can endure the things that we see taking place in this world. Because there's a war going on where the devil wants to do everything he can to try to destroy you, destroy your family, destroy this church. He wants to do everything. He's, he's wagging his tail all over the place. He's agitating. He's a troublemaker. And we're at war with him. And if we don't fight back, and if we don't apply some of these principles to our lives and our families, we're not going to do too well. It's going to be easy to give up in the run of the race and not make it to them. Because one thing we want to do is get to the finish line, don't we? That's the one thing we want to do. And the only way to do that that I know of is to fight back. Because if you don't fight the good fight of faith, you're going to lose. And fighting is an agonizing thing. Because that's what the word comes from, agonizomia. Even as Jesus was in agony in the garden, that's the kind of agony. I mean, I, can you imagine the warfare he was in at that time? And that's what we find ourselves in sometimes, agonizing over something. That's a fight. So let's, let's put on the whole armor of God and let's put on the high praises of God and shout and fight. Because the victory is ours. Because, you know, we are in Christ. But let's just continue to prove that we're in Christ. Let's give evidence to that fact by the fact that we are putting off the old man and putting on the new man. Because that's what Ephesians 4 tells us to do. And there's evidence then that, that, that you really are in Christ. It ought to be encouraging to you to know that. That God is not against you. God is for you. 
that God wants to see you finish this race, that God wants to conform you to the image of his son, that he wants to make you everything that his son is. And that's what he wants to do, and it's up to us to respond. Would you bow your hearts with me? Father, we live in very troublesome times. We live in a time when you even said that those that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. We live in a time like 2 Timothy 3 that there will come a time when there will be perilous times. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, lovers of this world, and not loving God having a form of godliness but denying the power there. From such, you warn us to turn away. And Lord, we can only acknowledge that we need your help and your grace. So we come boldly unto your throne of grace, asking for grace to help in the time of need. Because we do need help. We cannot do this on our own. And we thank you for sending the Holy Spirit, who is our comforter or our helper, called alongside to help us in this life, to lift us up and to strengthen us. Pour out your spirit afresh upon all of us and cause the love of God to be shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, that we might be able to endure all the things that are coming in this world, that we might be ready and prepared for your coming, that we might fight the good fight of faith and defeat the enemy rather than him defeating us. And we thank you for the good work that you have done and are doing and will continue to do. I pray for this church that you would continue to keep your people in the love of God, that you would continue to keep them in the faith and strengthen them in their marriages and in their relationships with one another. I pray for Brother Tom that you would continue to give him the very words he needs to speak to your people, give him wisdom and direction and guidance in these hours in which we live. And we just thank you, Lord, that you're, you're a good God. Amen. And surely goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our lives. Amen. And we shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.